Today, I'm going to be reading uh, a couple of short excerpts or chapters from a Dennis Johnson story called The Largesse of the Seed Maiden. Uh, I picked up this book at Myopic the other day, and it was uh, the perfect palate cleanser because just prior, uh, for the last week, I've been reading possibly one of the worst books I've ever read in my life. Then I opened this one, and it just was its the proverbial breath of fresh air, whatever, uh, your favorite cliche, but uh, just reads easy and true, and uh, it's a fucking pleasure. Anyhow, uh, the first uh, piece is called Accomplices. Another silence comes to mind. A couple of years ago, Elaine and I had dinner at the home of Miller Thomas, formerly the head of my agency in Manhattan. Right, he and his wife Francesca ended up out here too, but considerably later than Elaine and I, once my boss, now a San Diego retiree. We finished two bottles of wine with dinner, maybe three bottles. After dinner, we had brandy. Before dinner, we had cocktails. We didn't know each other particularly well, and maybe we used the liquor to rush past that fact. After the brandy, I started drinking scotch, and Miller drank bourbon. And, although the weather was warm enough that the central air conditioner was running, he pronounced it a cold night and lit a fire in his fireplace. It took only a squirt of the fluid and the pop of a match to get an armload of sticks crackling and blazing. Then he laid on a couple of large chunks he said were good, seasoned oak. The capitalist at his forge, Francesca said. At one point, we were standing in the light of the flames, I and Miller Thomas, seeing how many books each man could balance on his outflung arms. Elaine and Francesca loading them onto our hands in a test of equilibrium, which both of us failed repeatedly. It became a test of strength. I don't know who won. We called for more and more books, and our women piled them on until most of Miller's library lay around us on the floor. He had a small Marston Hartley canvas mounted above the mantel, a crazy mostly blue landscape done in oil, and I said that perhaps that wasn't the place for a painting like this one, so near the smoke and heat, such an expensive painting. And the painting was masterly, too, from what I could see of it by dim lamps and firelight amid books scattered all over the floor. Miller took offense. He said he'd paid for this masterpiece. He owned it. He could put it where it suited him. He moved very near the flames and took down the painting and turned to us, holding it before him and declared that he could even, if he wanted, throw it in the fire and leave it there. Is it art? Sure. But listen, he said. Art doesn't own it. My name ain't Art. He held the canvas flat like a tray, landscape up, and tempted the flames with it, thrusting it in and out. 
And the strange thing is that I'd heard her nearly identical story about Miller Thomas and his beloved Hartley landscape some years before. About an evening very similar to this one. The drinks and wine and brandy and more drinks, the rowdy conversation, the scattering of books, and finally Miller thrusting this painting toward the flames and calling it his own property and threatening to burn it. On that previous night, his guests had talked him down from the heights, and he'd hung the painting back in its place. But on our night, why? None of us found a way to object as he added his property to the fuel and turned his back and walked away. A black spot appeared on the canvas and spread out in a sort of smoking puddle that gave rise to tiny flames. Miller sat in a chair across the living room by the flickering window and observed from that distance with a drink in his hand. Not a word, not a move from any of us. The wooden frame popped marvelously in the silence while the great painting cooked away, first black and twisted, soon gray and fluttering, then the fire had it all. Adman This morning I was assailed by such sadness at the velocity of life, the distance I've traveled from my own youth, the persistence of the old regrets, the new regrets, the ability of failure to freshen itself in novel forms, that I almost crashed the car. Getting out at the place where I do the job I don't feel I'm very good at, I grabbed my briefcase too roughly and dumped half of its contents in my lap and half in the parking lot. And while gathering it all up, I left my keys on the seat and locked the car manually, an old man's habit, and trapped them in the RAV. In the office, I asked Shailene to call a locksmith and then get me an appointment with my back man. In the upper right quadrant of my back, I have a nerve that once in a while gets pinched, the T4 nerve. These nerves aren't frail little ink lines. They're cords as thick as your pinky finger. This one gets caught between tense muscles, and for days, even weeks, there's not much to be done but take aspirins and get massages and visit the chiropractor. Down my right arm, I feel a tingling, a numbness, sometimes a dull, sort of muffled torment, or else a shapeless, confusing pain. It's a signal. It happens when I'm anxious about something. To my surprise, Shailene knew all about this something. Apparently, she finds time to be Googling her bosses, and she'd learned of an award I was about to receive in, of all places, New York, for an animated television commercial. The award goes to my old New York team, but I was the only one of us attending the ceremony, possibly the only one interested, so many years down the line. This little gesture of acknowledgement but the finishing touches on a depressing picture. The people on my team had gone on to other teams, fancier agencies, higher accomplishments. All I'd done in better than two decades was to tread forward until I reached the limit of certain assumptions. 
and step off. Meanwhile, Shailene was ooing, gushing, like a proud nurse who expects you to marvel at all the unholy procedures the hospital has in store for you. I said to her, thanks, thanks. When I entered the reception area and throughout this transaction, Shailene wore a flashy sequin carnival mask. I didn't ask why. Our office environment is part of the new wave. The whole agency works under one gigantic big top, like a circus. Not crowded, quite congenial, all of it surrounding a spacious break time area with pinball machines and a basketball hoop. And every Friday during the summer months, we have a happy hour with free beer from a keg. In New York, I made commercials. In San Diego, I write and design glossy brochures, mostly for a group of Western resorts where golf is played and horses take you along bridle paths. Don't get me wrong. California's full of beautiful spots. It's a pleasure to bring them to the attention of people who might enjoy them. Just please, not with a badly pinched nerve. When I can't stand it, I take the day off and visit the big art museum in Balboa Park. Today, after the locksmith got me back in my car, I drove to the museum and sat in on part of a lecture in one of its side rooms. A woman outsider artist raving, Art is man, and man is art. I listened for five minutes, and what little of it she managed to make com comprehensible didn't even merit being called shallow. Just the same, her paintings were slyly designed, intricately patterned and coherent. I wandered from wall to wall, taking some of it in, not much, but looking at art for an hour or so always changes the way I see things afterward. This day, for instance, a group of mentally handicapped adults on a tour of the place with their twisted hovering hands and cocked heads, moving among the works like cheap cinema zombies, but good zombies, zombies with minds and souls and things to keep them interested. And outside, where they normally have a lot of large metal sculptures, the grounds were being dug up and reconstructed, a dragline shovel nosing the rubble monstrously, and a woman and a child watching, motionless the little boy standing on a bench with a smile and sideways eyes, and his mother beside him, holding his hand, both so still, like a photograph of American ruin. Next, I had a session with a chiropractor dressed up as an elf. It seemed the entire staff at the medical complex near my house were costumed for Halloween, and while I waited out front in the car for my appointment, the earliest one I could get that day, I saw a Swiss milkmaid coming back from lunch, then a witch with a green face, then a sunburst orange superhero. Then I had the session with the chiropractor in his tights and drooping cap. As for me, my usual guys. The masquerade continues. Farewell. Elaine got a wall phone for the kitchen. 
a sleek blue one that wears its receiver like a hat, with a caller ID readout on its face just below the keyboard. While I eyeballed this instrument, having just come in from my visit with the chiropractor, a brisk, modest tone began, and the tiny screen showed ten digits I didn't recognize. My inclination was to scorn it like any other unknown, but this was the first call, the inaugural message. As soon as I touched the receiver, I wondered if I'd regret this, if I was holding a mistake in my hand, if I was pulling this mistake to my head and saying hello to it. The caller was my first wife, Virginia, or Jenny, as I'd always called her. We'd been married long ago, in our early twenties, and put a stop to it after three crazy years. Since then we hadn't spoken. We'd had no reason to. But now we had one. Jenny was dying. Her voice came faintly. She told me the doctors had closed the book on her. She'd ordered her affairs. The good people from hospice were in attendance. Before she ended this earthly transit, as she called it, Ginny wanted to shed any kind of bitterness against certain people, certain men, especially me. She said how much she'd been hurt and how badly she wanted to forgive me, but she didn't know whether she could or not. She hoped she could, and I assured her from the abyss of a broken heart that I hoped so too, that I hated my infidelities and my lies about the money and the way I'd kept my boredom secret, and my secrets in general. And Jenny and I talked, after forty years of silence, about the many other ways I'd stolen her right to the truth. In the middle of this, I began wondering, most uncomfortably, in fact with a dizzy, sweating anxiety, if I'd made a mistake, if this wasn't my first wife, Jenny, no, but rather my second wife, Jennifer, often called Jenny. Because of the weakness of her voice and my own humming shock at the news, also the situation around her as she tried to speak to me on this very important occasion, folks coming and going and the sounds of a respirator, I supposed. Now 15 minutes into this call, I couldn't remember if she'd actually said her name when I picked up the phone, and I suddenly didn't know whether she, which set of crimes I was regretting. Wasn't sure if this dying farewell, clobbering me to my knees in true repentance beside the kitchen table was Virginia's or Jennifer's. This is hard, I said. Can I put the phone down a minute? I heard her say okay. The house felt empty. Elaine, I called. Nothing. I wiped my face with a dish rag and took off my blazer and hung it on a chair and called out Elaine's name one more time and then picked up the receiver again. There was nobody there. Somewhere inside it, the phone had preserved the caller's number, of course. Jenny's number or Jenny's, but I didn't look for it. We'd had our talk, and Jenny, or Jenny, whichever, had recognized herself in my frank apologies. 
and she'd been satisfied. Because after all, both sets of crimes had been the same. I was tired. What a day. I called Elaine on her cell phone. We agreed she might as well stay at the Budget Inn on the east side. She volunteered out there teaching adults to read, and once in a while she got caught late and stayed over. Good. I could lock all three locks on the door and call it a day. I didn't mention the previous call. I turned in early. I dreamed of a wild landscape. Elephants, dinosaurs, bat caves, strange natives, and so on. I woke, couldn't go back to sleep, put on a long terry cloth robe over my PJs, and slipped into my loafers and went walking. People in bathrobes stroll around here at all hours. But not often, I think, without a pet on a leash. Ours is a good neighborhood. A Catholic church in a Mormon one, in a posh townhouse development with much open green space. In our side of the street, some pretty nice smaller homes. I wonder if you're like me, if you collect and squirrel away in your soul certain odd moments when the mystery winks at you, when you walk in your bathrobe and tasseled loafers, for instance, well out of your neighborhood and among a lot of closed shops, and you approach your very faint reflection in a window with words above it. The sign said, Sky and Celery. Closer, it read, Ski and Cyclery. I headed home.